The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Dr. Norman Doidge, is a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and the New York Times bestselling author of The Brain That Changes Itself, which was chosen by the Dana Foundation for the Brain as the number one book on the brain ever written for the general public. He's on the research faculty at Columbia University's Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research and on the faculty of the University of Toronto's Department of Psychiatry as well. Dr. Norman Doidge is here today on Health Watch to talk about his latest book, The Brain's Way of Healing, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Norman Doidge. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with the term neuroplasticity, Dr. Doidge, since I'm guessing some of that means and that would set the terms of our discussion. Sure. Neuro is for neuron, the nerve cells in the brain that fire electrical signals, and plasticity means changeable, modifiable, adaptable. And neuroplasticity is that property of the brain that allows it to change its structure and function in response to activity and mental experience. So what we think and what we do actually changes our brain structure, um, which, and this discovery although anticipated in various theoretical flashes for some time, um, was really only demonstrated convincingly to most neuroscientists in the, at first in the few experiments in the late 70s, but there was still much doubt about it through the 80s, and then in the 90s it became um, an indisputable fact of Brain, brain science, and in the year 2000, uh, the Nobel Prize went to Dr. Eric Kandel in medicine or physiology. That was a category for showing that learning changes the connections between uh, neurons. And we've now had thousands of experiments that show that. And uh, what my first book did was to show that this was clinically and culturally significant. So let's speak a little bit about the time frame between your first book and your latest book, uh, about seven years. What, what has changed in, in neuroscience about the ways in which the adult brain can actually uh, change itself through sure. various activities? Well, I want to say I don't speak for neuroscience as a whole. I want to speak for those people within neuroscience who are very focused on brain plasticity and you know, the first big change is that the second generation of the people who do this work, I call them neuroplasticians, uh, haven't been burdened by having to prove that brain plasticity exists so they can throw themselves more deeply into the fine points. Um, I, after the publication of the first book, I basically traveled to five continents and got to know um, you know, about major developments, and I noticed a trend that many of the people involved in it were shifting from just using brain, brain exercises um, and that kind of mental stimulation to taking into account the role of energy, um, energy in, tr 
in changing brain structure. So let me explain. Um, you know, people have so emphasized the role of ke- the chemistry of the brain in the last 50 or 60 years and the role of drugs, the, you know, the use of drugs to change the brain. And there are chemicals in the brain that function as signals uh, to turn, help to turn cells on and off. That, that's true. But they function, function at a very local level, microscopically. They're, they travel over a thin gap between neurons. But, you know, if we wanted to call the chemical language of the brain a language, we'd have to call it a dialect because it's, it's spoken uh, in local areas, if you will. Something like dopamine that we hear about as a brain chemical um, it's especially important in a few departments in the brain. But there is another language of the brain, and that is the language of patterns of energy, uh, of electrical firing, and that goes across vast expanses of the brain. It's spoken throughout the brain by every nerve cell. So that's not a dialect. That's the lingua franca of the brain. The brain works in patterns of energy. Now, all of our senses, like our sense receptors, they are involved in translating patterns of energy of one form to this electrical form of patterns of energy. So our retina translates energy from photons, light, into electrical energy, and the information is conveyed as well. Our ears translate sound waves and the patterns in those sound waves in music, human speech, or whatever, into electrical patterns. And on and on it goes through the senses. Even smell. There's a major theory now that we can differentiate odors by the vibrational resonance of the molecules that we're smelling. Now, it turns out, therefore, that you can use our sense experience, if you manipulate the frequencies, to alter brain structure. And what I was seeing in my travels is the role of light, sound, vibration, um, biological levels of electrical stimulation, um, movement, which of course involves energy, to change brain structure. And I would say that's the new thing. And the meaning of the title of my book is simply this, that for, you know, a hundred years at least, scientists and clinicians who were trained didn't use the words brain and healing in the same sense. It was just believed the brain had become so sophisticated in the course of evolution, so specialized that a price had to be paid. And that was the loss of its ability to heal or find replacement parts. And what I show in the book is that, in fact, the brain has its own way of healing, and it involves forming and unforming and reforming um, circuits so that if some circuits are damaged, others can take over. Well, Dr. Deutsch, when you, you mentioned that you traveled all over the world and looked at body-centric and sensory-oriented therapies to affect the brain, and that this is a relatively new thing in Western science, would you say that it isn't a relatively new thing in other medical systems, say in India or China, that the idea that body movement could actually change uh, brain plasticity, or is that also new there? Well, as I understand, you're right. There is an aspect of the book that is attempting to bridge 
uh, East and West, although the fundamental categories of thought in this book are all Western. When I talk about energy, there are equations for it, etc. My reading on Eastern medicine, and um, I know a little bit about it, but not a lot, is that they talked about mind and body and energy. There wasn't a lot of discussion of the brain, or they hadn't mapped the brain the way we have in the West. Nonetheless, they had a number of practices, and they, you know, just roughly several billion people, you know, um, over several millennia. That's a lot of people. And they were using these practices to modulate their, you know, physiology. And I, in Western terms, it's pretty clear they were modulating brain structure, but they didn't see it that way. On the other hand, we in the West tended to see the brain as like a machine with parts, and each part performed a single mental function in a single location in the brain. And we got boxed into that metaphor because um, we just didn't know how it was possible to alter that machine with thought. Um, we thought that thought worked according to certain laws, and the machine-like brain worked by other other laws. The brain was seen to be hardwired, and so the idea that you could do intensive practices like meditation and actually change the brain didn't seem feasible until Richard Davidson and uh, Lazar showed that, in fact, you know, monks of the Dalai Lama when they have meditated, have actually altered the structure of their brains. So the answer is, in practice, they were using brain plasticity. Theoretically, they didn't see themselves as using brain plasticity, as far as I know. And this is where we can begin to form a bridge between East and West. Practically, in some respects, with regard to these specific interventions, they were ahead of us. Um, we were ahead of them in basically beginning to map the brain. And now what I'm trying to do in this book is form bridges in terms of Western neuroscience uh, and to be open-minded enough to not write these other treatments off just because we didn't understand them for, you know, hundreds of years. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today to Dr. Norman Doidge about his latest book, The Brain's Way of Healing. Uh, Dr. Deutsch, could you pick uh, a story? Your book is full of really interesting stories about these non-invasive procedures and and people seeing um, benefits when they have brain conditions that you wouldn't expect them necessarily to see benefits. Sure. Um, well, let me start off with a story that has to do with energy, just because I was I've just been talking about it, and then we could get to something that um, might appeal to you know, listeners who are interested in cases of Alzheimer's or chronic pain, you know, sorry, not Alzheimer's, Parkinson's or chronic pain, you know, more common things. So I just have to step back and explain what I think happens in brain damage, which then will make these treatments sound less fantastic, because I describe the use of light to alter brain injuries and sound to improve autism and vibration to eliminate ADD. And it sounds all very hard to believe. But if you understand these things about the brain, you'll see it's not magic. Um, as I studied many different brain conditions, it became apparent to me that when a person had, let's say, a brain injury or a brain disease, 
what people, what clinicians were doing was looking at their level of function and how much had been lost. So let's say a person had lost 80% of their ability to move a leg and then projecting that back onto the brain and assuming that 80% of the neurons, the nerve cells in the brain that were in the movement center for that leg must be dead. But based on a lot of different kinds of studies, mostly electrical studies of quantitative EEGs, which are just the firing of the brain, um, I've put together the following guiding model or theory as to what's happening in, in many brain problems, and it's this. It's not true that just because you lose 80% of function, you've lost 80% of the neurons for that function or the pathways have been damaged. What really happens in the brain is the following. Um, when there's damage or disease, you have some cells that die. They're completely off. There are some cells beside those cells that have died that were accustomed to getting regular input from them, and suddenly they're deprived of input. So they're not working at capacity now. You have some cells, again adjacent, that are sick cells. Now, when cells are, quote, sick, it's not as though they fire no signals. In some ways, it might even be better if they were. Rather, they fire chaotic signals. They're kind of like a heart that's having an arrhythmia. They're going too fast or too slow or irregularly. In general, when there's brain damage, by the way, they tend to go too slow, and they generate things called delta waves. Now, then there are healthy cells that are beside the sick cells, and what they are doing is getting input, which is chaotic. It's like noise. And then finally, there's some healthy cells that are fun functioning just properly. So you've got a brain that has a continuum of damage, but it's all manifest by irregular firing. That's the key concept. And because it's firing irregularly, it's working hard, it's using up energy, but the circuitry for these functions can't operate and then it begins to waste away. And in my first book, I showed how that occurs. But it's a use it or lose it brain. If you don't keep a circuit active, it starts to become dormant or atrophy to waste or used for other things. Now, let's take something, I mean, one of my favorite stories in the book is the use of sound. So with sound, we can have an immediate impact on the firing of neurons. Um, if you're driving down the street and a sports car pulls up to you and there's some young person in there listening to music very loud with a real pounding beat. In fact, your neurons in the sound processing areas will begin to fire in synchrony with that beat. We've shown that many times. So you can influence the firing rates of neurons. That's why, for instance, some children who are prone to epilepsy, if they see flashing lights, can start to have epileptic attacks. Neurons fire in synchrony with the input from the sensory uh, receptors. Now, children with autism, let's, let's take a really, really challenging case, but this is going to be helpful for children with learning disorders and ADD as well. The majority of children with autism have certain hypersensitivities, particularly to sound. They're often covering their ears and screaming, the things that bother them the most are things like machines with continuous sounds and with some low frequencies. 
some people thought that that was just a symptom, you know, one of many symptoms of autism. Now, autism is a whole body disease, and one of the things that happens is there's inflammation in many children with autism throughout their bodies, their GI tracts, their skin. Um, they have funny reactions when they have fevers. Sometimes their symptoms go down. There's something happening immunologically in autistic children, and on autopsy, their brains show signs of um, inflammation. We also have very recent studies that show that the neurons, the nerve cells in their brains, are underconnected in many areas and overconnected in a few. Now, why are these children having these hypersensitivities? Um, because there's an auditory zoom in everyone's, in everyone's ear or everyone's listening circuit, such that when you go into a party, you hear booming, buzzing confusion. It sounds like noise initially, and then eventually you can hone in on some conversations in the frequencies of human speech, which are, tend to be higher, and sort out that there's a conversation about religion in one corner and romance in another and politics and sports in another. So that auditory zoom is working to tune in on the frequencies of human speech and differentiate them. In autistic children, it doesn't work. They end up hearing lower frequencies. Now, it turns out that the lower frequencies are the frequencies that, over the course of evolution, were associated with predators. This is why when you go to a movie like Jaws and the shark comes on, there's a boom, boom, boom sound. And in so many movies, when there's a, you know, a predator afoot, human or animal, there's a low sound, and we all are spine-tingling for us. Autistic children tend to be stuck in that. And when you're stuck in that, you're in the fight-or-flight system. And therefore, you can't begin to think of relationships or connecting with people. You're scared for your life. You're on high alert. Now, in one of the programs I describe um, uh, in the book sound frequencies in music are modified to slowly train that auditory zoom circuit. Um, they go high and then low, but in very, very small amounts so that the person can begin to neuroplastically grow that circuit and get control of the auditory zoom. And it's more complicated than what I'm saying, but this is a key feature of the intervention. It's brain-based. It's getting the brain to fire and neurons that fire together, wire together. So, and often after just, you know, less than a week of this, these children are not hypersensitive to, to sounds. They look calmer, relaxed. They typically, autistic children often um, don't establish eye contact. They might establish eye contact with their mothers for the first time in ages, go over and hug their father, and with this kind of treatment, over time, I have seen children with severe autism go to moderate to mild. In the book, I even describe one case. It's atypical, but it happened, of a child with moderate autism who was actually completely cured. So in that... And there's work coming out of... Um, Dr. Deutsch, I, I hate to change the subject because this is, is genuinely fascinating, but given that we have such a short time today, sure. I just want to get in a couple more questions on some other topics from your book sure. as well. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, 
Uh, and I hope the people who are listening who are really um, intrigued about the learning disabilities for children will check out your book. But one of the other things I wanted to ask you is for people who don't have overt brain issues who are listening today who maybe just want to enhance brain health or improve brain plasticity, do you have any tips from The Brain's Way of Healing that you would suggest for, for people? Yeah, I mean, there's many, but I, you know, in general, it's a use-it-or-lose-it brain. You're more likely for your brain to um, waste away from under... Your brain's more likely to waste away from underuse than wear out from overuse. I'm not talking about stress, but if you want to improve your brain, I, you know, there are various brain exercises. If you are described in the book that or developed by neuroscientists, that's helpful. The, but the most important story that could affect most people now is the issue of lowering the risk for dementia, I think. We've just had just a wonderfully important study that's come out of, of Wales. Now, often when you hear, oh, we've just had a study, you're describing a study that was done over a year or two, and it's just one study. But this is a 30-year-long study done by uh, a group affiliated with the Cochrane Institute, which is considered the gold standard in medicine for studies. They followed about 2,200 men doing healthy behaviors as they were described in 1979 when the study started. And men who followed four of the following five behaviors had a staggering reduction in the risk of getting dementia of 60%. Now, it's not a cure for dementia if you already have dementia. But it's a reduction of risk. And the study and the factors were exercise was the most important, walking two miles a day, riding your bike 10 miles a day, or just regular vigorous exercise. Uh, not smoking, being a normal weight, eating fruits and vegetables, and not um, drinking immoderately. But the most important factor is a neuroplastic factor. Exercise triggers neurotrophic growth factors factors in the brain that are like fertilizer for brain connections and a few new cells. And something like walking does it because when animals have to walk a long distance, it's usually because they're avoiding a predator or there's no food left in one area, so they go to some place they have to explore. And that means they're going to have to learn and make new brain connections. And the brain, it seems, in anticipation of having to do lots of learning in a new territory, secretes these growth factors. Um, which seems so protective against not only dementia but, uh, but other things. And Alzheimer's is one kind of dementia, but its rates were also lowered in, in these men. Can you talk a little bit about brain plasticity and eyesight? I, I found it interesting uh, about screen time on our digital devices and how it both would affect our eyes and then our brains. And I was curious if... Once you talk about how that happens, what we can do and still enjoy the benefits of these technologies. Well, look, everything you do changes your brain structure. And one of the things that's happening with these screens is we are maximizing central vision. So the, the eye has two kinds of vision, central vision, which is focused on fine details, and peripheral vision, which gives us context. And if you imagine human beings, you know, in their natural condition on the Serengeti or walking through the desert, we had lots of use of peripheral vision. Peripheral vision is where new things happen, where an animal pops up or a potential mate or perhaps some fruit. We see that in the corner of our eye. But what we're doing now is we are 
focusing, you know, about 18 inches in front of us with central vision all the time in a very fixed way. And our peripheral vision is atrophying. And wherever we have do- introduced lots of central vision fixation, such as with the rise of even reading books, the rise of nearsightedness increases. You know, there are, there are societies in, in Asia where, you know, they were illiterate, you know, 60 years ago, and now everyone's literate, and now everyone's having to wear glasses. And the problem with wearing these glasses is if you're, if you're nearsighted, it predisposes you to a number of eye diseases or problems further down the line. So we have to begin to correct for that. And in the book, I describe a man who was actually blind um, and how he actually got to the point where he could see now, this may sound incredible and hard to believe, but what most people do not appreciate is that um, our eyes are constantly moving, even when we can't see it. And the way we pick up images is by moving them in a very fluid way. That tends to decrease when you're looking just in front of you. And he was able to do smooth movements um, over time and increase both his peripheral vision because his central vision had been destroyed, and begin to see through that. But, you know, I myself was able, using these principles at a workshop, to um, improve my eyeglass prescription. It kept getting worse every several years. And in two days, I was actually to improve my vision by 0.75 diopters in both eyes, uh, using these natural vision exercises, which are rewiring my brain. And some people can get rid of their glasses altogether. But I didn't do it for simply cosmetic reasons. I, didn't, I was tired of my prescription getting worse and worse and having much more eye strain. So these are neuroplastic principles applied to sight. And in the case of this blind man, they're very, very graphic. Well, it's also interesting in reading the acknowledgments to the brain's way of healing that your long-term editor had a stroke halfway through you writing this book and was actually implementing a lot of uh, these therapies for his own recovery. Yeah, I mean, it was just like unbelievably painful, ironic um, that that Jim, who worked on me on both books, uh, he'd, he'd been given a medication that thinned his blood too much and he had uh, a significant stroke and was paralyzed on one side. And... Um, it was weird. So what do we do now? And really, to to finish the book, we had to put into play uh, about four of the tech, maybe five of the techniques in the book. He used he used light. He used a certain kind of movement therapy. Um, several kinds of movement therapy were the principal ones, and he used an electrical device, which. Um, help to synchronize his brain that I describe in the book. And by the way, he, he a great sacrifice he made because I think we could have sped his recovery up even more, but he insisted on editing the book. It became for him a very important thing to do. He saw how important these were. But no sooner had I turned in the book that we went to one of these places I describe, and Jim took his first steps mm. unassisted. Uh, so... This has been, boy, the hardest book I ever had to write. <laughs> well, the hardest writing assignment I ever had because it hit me very close to where I live because Jim and I had become very close working over two books. Mm. 
Well, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today, Dr. Deutsch. Do you, do you have a uh, website you could point listeners to if they're curious about your work? Sure. I, I have a bit of an unusual name. It's spelled like Dodge with an I, D-O-I-D-G-E. And if you go to normandoidge.com, you'll get my website. Or if you just put in the Brain's Way of Healing and Norman, you'll probably get to uh, my website pretty quickly. Well, it was a pleasure reading your book and having you on the show today. Thank you for the opportunity. We are talking today to Dr. Norman Deutsch, the author of The Brain's Way of Healing, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine.